Welcome to It's an EDRN. On today's episode, we're going to talk about drugs, both the kind you get from your friendly neighborhood EDRN, maybe to ease the pain of a traumatic injury, and the kind you get from not-so-reputable sources, maybe to ease the pain that is the human existence. One is considered good and the other bad, even when they are the same drug. But why? Let's find out together. I'm your host, Need DRN, and I hope you'll stick around to listen. It's an E. It's a D. It's an EDRN. It's an E. Dance for emergency. It's a D. Dance for department. It's an ED. Not erectile dysfunction. Episode 36, an EDRN is not a soldier in the war on drugs. Welcome to my podcast, It's an EDRN. I am your host, an EDRN, and today we are talking about drugs. Controlled substances, narcotics, whatever you want to call them. They're not the only drugs out there, but they are the most talked about and the most maligned. Drugs like fentanyl, dilaudid, ketamine, morphine, and others are used daily in my practice and are incredibly helpful to my patients. However, the prevalence of these drugs has also contributed to the opioid epidemic. But before we get into all of that, if you're new to the show, hello, welcome. I'm your host, Nidia Ren. I've been a nurse for 11 years, almost 12 years now, actually. Um, I spent like the first five years in med surge, and then I went to the ICU for a couple years, and then for five years I was a nurse manager. And about a year and a half ago, I realized that was not the move for me, uh, no longer something I wanted to do. So I decided to go back to bedside in the emergency department, and that's where I have been ever since. And honestly, I am having a great time. I'm also giving a lot of drugs, a lot of controlled substances are given in the emergency department um, very quickly and very often for obvious reasons of people come in in a lot of pain, especially when they've been in a trauma. And so this has really gotten me thinking about the use of drugs in the hospital, uh, the use of drugs recreationally in the community, and how we got here. And so I've done, I have known for a while the opioid crisis was essentially created by pharmaceutical companies. Um, I've read all of the articles, um, or not all of them, but I've read multiple articles about the Sackler family, for example, the lawsuits that are going on. Um, I think most people know that there is a, a problem with drugs and that the COVID pandemic only made this worse and increased overdose rates. So today, I just wanted to talk about, historically, the way in which we have been taught to think about drugs, um, those used recreationally, and why that may be a problem also, how has the community that we belong to, the healthcare community, contributed to this problem? And then finally, when it comes to nurses specifically, the issue that we have with diversion. So let's begin with the war on 
drugs. And just putting all my cards on the table here, it is my understanding from existing evidence um, that what we know as the war on drugs really was just a tool of oppression for black and brown communities. And I know that that's a very strong statement to make, and that is why um, I just want to be clear that it's not my opinion, it's data. Um, and also, as a white lady myself, this this is not something, again, that I just came up with. Um, I am relying on experts in this area, as we often do in medicine and really in all other areas of our life, if we are wanting actual data and not just something to reinforce a belief that we already have. Which is why I will be heavily referencing um, a seminar that I watched um, by the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics, which is a University of Pennsylvania school. And this seminar was basically made up of panelists and content experts and researchers specifically in this area, whose job it is to analyze this kind of data historically and in the present. It was a very interesting seminar. I learned a lot, and I will link it in the show notes. I highly recommend you watch it. It's a little under an hour, and there is also uh, an article that goes with it um, that just has a lot of very interesting information and will help you to really think differently I think, than we've been taught to think about all of this. So uh, the war on drugs, the, just a very quick history, actually started with the Nixon administration around 1971. I, probably like a lot of 80s babies, thought that it started with Nancy Reagan and the D.A.R.E. campaign. <laughs> and it was uh, before that. Anyway, um, instead of just like going into all the historical stuff on that, I really just want to read directly this quote. Um, this is a quote from the head, one of Nixon's head campaign managers, basically, um, when he was being interviewed to talk about what was going on in that era and what the war on drugs was actually meant to be. And this is, this is some, him speaking retrospectively. I think the interview took place like in the 90s and it was published in Harper's. Um, and I'm just going to read the quote. It is a long quote, but it's, I really don't want to paraphrase it. So I'm just going to read it all the way through. Quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. <laughs> it's a bit chilling to just hear someone who was directly involved, a leader in this war on drugs campaign, just admit outright what they were doing. Um, this period in history, the war on drugs, coincided with a huge boom in incarcerations, and this is often by scholars referred to as the new Jim Crow laws. And they continue to exist to this day. And 
these incarcerations, as you can imagine, um, presently for drug possession are well over represented by black, brown, and indigenous people. So then we get to the 90s, early 2000s, and it's a different kind of epidemic that we're hearing about. It's the opioid epidemic. And this one is very different. Thanks in large part, um, well, let's start at the beginning. So the opioid epidemic. The pharmaceutical companies who, by the way, were responsible for huge barbiturate overdoses in the 1950s and benzo overdoses in the 1960s, largely among white suburban areas. So if you're wondering why you haven't really ever heard of that, um, that is why. And overrepresented by the Sackler family, who have been really um, garbage for quite some time, that is my opinion. Um, basically, they started overprescribing these opioids in the 1990s for moderate pain, things like chronic back pain. The target audience for these drugs were, quote, trustworthy patients, which, of course, is widely understood to be um, coded language for white patients. And so what happened was you had this massive overprescribing, and then suddenly they can't get more of the oxycodone that they're now addicted to and so many of these individuals, predominantly white individuals, because of the trustworthy patients thing, um, pivoted to heroin when they couldn't get their prescriptions filled. Or the prescription drugs that they were getting were no longer enough to satisfy the addiction. Um, suddenly, with all of this going on, because it was noticed by media outlets, they're running stories of white suburban housewives who are addicted to these drugs that have historically been associated with black and brown communities. So all of a sudden, for the first time, you see these programs develop. You see people having uh, empathy for those with drug addiction. You have good Samaritan laws that start popping up in these more affluent areas, protecting the people who are about to overdose or a potential overdose. So if you call in a potential overdose, um, you're not criminalized. That was a new law that, was, that had to be established because even be, witnessing an overdose could be criminalized. Um, we have the development of buprenorphine, and it's legalized for use in doctor's offices. And to this day, white people are three to four times more likely to receive this expensive treatment than black and brown indigenous people. And again, there are plenty of resources for you to validate the data that I'm giving you, and I would start with that seminar who I believe have a list of cited sources at the bottom. That It's a great place to start. There are so many resources to research this, but that's a good place to start. Basically, all this to say, the war on drugs was clearly a tool of black, brown, and indigenous oppression. The pivot to compassion around drug addiction only materialized after it became clear that white Americans were being largely affected. As a side note, however, white people have always used more drugs than black and brown people, period. This is, this is not according to me. This is according to available data. 
as cited by the experts on this panel. As nurses, how does this information, why is it important for us to understand this? We have this responsibility to be aware of these things. We handle these drugs, not necessarily the street versions of these drugs, which are obviously different. They're cut with garbage. They're, they come from disreputable sources. We, at least that's what we're to understand. But the reason it's important is because we are members of a community that are going to treat people with drug overdose who use recreational drugs on a daily basis. And our treatment of those people cannot, as far as we can control, contain a, a prejudice or a bias. But the more we educate ourselves, the more we can extricate ourselves from those biases that are just inherent, especially for those like myself who are white, grew up in a white household, had predominantly white friends. And so everything, every piece of information I received was filtered through a white lens to say nothing of the fact that that is just kind of how our country is run baseline. Our influence as trusted members of the community, we are the most trusted profession. We have to use that for good and we have to change the way that we think about this in order for the public at large to change the way that they view it as well, which unfortunately is often as a moral failing and not a medical diagnosis. As nurses, we also need to recognize the issue of diversion. If you're not aware, um, and that's okay if you're not, but it's more than likely that you are, um, Nurses and narcotics have a bit of a sordid history and a sordid present. So statistics from both the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and the American Nurses Association suggest that about 10% of healthcare workers are abusing drugs currently. This is from a Joint Commission report uh, published in 2019. And then I'm just, again going to quote from that report, quote, experts believe that only a fraction of those who are diverting drugs are ever caught, despite clear signals such as abnormal behaviors, altered physical appearance, and poor job performance, end quote. So basically that 10% of healthcare workers may not be inclusive of all because the reporting is not very thorough. There's also an NPR article that I will link in the show notes as well, and it goes into kind of all the ways that patients suffer. In addition to the healthcare workers themselves, patients suffer when these medications are diverted. They, there have been instances of patients contracting hepatitis C to getting um, bloodborne infections when the medication that they're intended to receive is instead replaced with tap water and that tap water is injected into the patient. It's, and it's not just nurses. I do want to point out it is, we are definitely um, leading statistically in this area, but it's also, you know, it's anesthesiologists, nurse anesthetists, um, OR techs. It is 
basically those who have access to these drugs and I mean, there are so many reasons why people would divert drugs. And just on, just for myself personally, I have worked with, that I can recall clearly four nurses in the last 11 years that I personally worked with. Not that I heard about on another unit, or, but that I worked alongside one who I was their boss. Um, who were caught diverting. And it was very, very surprising each time. There is no, contrary to what we are, I think, told and led to believe, there's really no profile of a person who diverts. There's no specific kind of person. Any of us could get to a point in our lives where we were doing this either for ourselves or a family member or a friend, or with a friend, frankly. And a lot of it stems from, like, legally prescribed medications. And that is what's truly sad about it. Yeah. God, how do I wrap this up? I don't know. It's a really heavy subject, but it's really important. And it's important for us as nurses to make sure that we are doing everything that we can do to ensure that diverting is not easy for us. It's not wouldn't be easy for us to fall into that. And secondly, so that we don't look at our patients as though there's something wrong with them that they would use drugs in this way. Because honestly, more often than not, it is something that has been created by our culture, either by pharmaceutical companies or the way that we run healthcare in this country, or the way that we malign and judge those um, who grow up in different circumstances than we do and have different resources than we do. Just the criminalization of poverty in general, it's kind of amazing how judgy we can get towards people who are just really in need. Um, yeah, and I could keep talking about this forever, but I'm not going to. Um, let's end there. And now it's time for some tips and tricks. Tip number one. Diversify your history. The reason you hear people say representation matters is because it does matter. It matters in all areas because the trail of human actions known as history does not exist in a vacuum. You you cannot extract the lived experience of a group or groups of people and expect to have a full view of what came before. So in the case of drugs, drug use disorder in this country, or really any country, but the U.S. in particular, you can't have a full understanding of it without recognizing the blatant racial disparities. And if, like me, you grew up in a whitey white family in a whitey white community with white friends and white relatives in a whitey white part of the U.S. <laughs> Just assume you are ill-educated to this. That is not your fault. That is not a failing of yours. However, to recognize that you're ill-educated and do nothing about it, that's a choice. Tip number two. Use the correct nomenclature. 
So the way that we refer to things can have a deep impact on the people around us, in particular, the people that we are referencing. So for example, consider the difference between calling someone a drug abuser and saying a person with substance use disorder. On the one hand, you have a very accusatory tone. And then on the other hand, there's an element of compassion and honestly just professionalism inherent in saying a person with substance use disorder. This person has this disorder. It is not who they are. So it changes essentially from a term that defines a person to a recognition that this person is more than the, just what they're struggling with at this particular time in their lives. It's not our role to judge. It's our role to offer treatment options. Tip number three. Pivoting now to nursing practice, insist on a witness to your waste. Whenever I go to waste a narcotic and one of my nurse friends says, oh, I trust you, um, without missing a beat, I say you shouldn't. <laughs> and again, if 11 years as a nurse has taught me anything, it's that there is no specific kind of person who develops a drug dependency. It can happen to literally anyone, including me, including you. In addition to that, if I'm ever accused of diversion, I want just like every one of my fellow nurses to be able to confidently say, I physically witnessed every waste that she says I did. That is your best defense. So insist on a witness to your waste and do the same for the nurses you work with and that you care about. And finally, I have one trick. Practice radical empathy. So what this looks like for me and what this may look like for you is the next time an MVC rollover comes in and they're drunk as a skunk and they've got every kind of substance on their drug test panel, like instead of thinking what you instinctively probably think about this person, which is if you're me, likely judgy and really designed to place a firm distinction between yourself and the unsavory behavior of your patient. Um, instead, practice saying to yourself, I wonder what happened to this person that this is where they are right now. How different must my life had have to have been for me to be in a similar place today? We're not that different. We're just in very different circumstances. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, please subscribe. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell all your nurse friends to listen. When it comes to the disease of substance use disorder, we would do well to remember that we as healthcare workers are certainly not immune and that the same for-profit healthcare system which created and contributes to this problem today is unlikely to be its savior. We don't judge, we treat. And then we charge people money for it because America. Thank you for listening and have a safe shift. It's an EDRN is written and produced by me. Our senior editor is me. The theme song is written and performed by, tragically, also me. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the standards and positions of any healthcare entity that I may or may not be working for. Although I am a nurse, things I say in this podcast are not a stand-in for professional medical advice, and everything you hear from randos on the internet should absolutely be validated across multiple other reliable sources.